So we are nearing the end of 2020, and Me Too and I wanted to have a year-end episode of sorts, something celebratory, although we weren't entirely clear what that would mean in a world where we're all huddled in our offices, but uh, at least for me, it means a nice celebratory cocktail um, is uh, on ice waiting for me. Uh, and one additional thing it meant is that we wanted to have a panel of really, really prominent experts to talk about the state of the sovereign debt markets and to maybe get a bit of a clearer sense for what lies ahead in 2021. So our guests today are Joyce Chang, Lee Buchheit, and Jeremy Zettelmeyer. And we have lots of things we wanted to discuss, but, but I know that one uh, topic we wanted to cover for sure related to contingent debt instruments. And, and that's really where I wanted to begin. And maybe um, if I can, I'll, I'll just start with a question for Joyce and then others can chime in. Um, so Joyce, I, I was interested in getting your take in particular because I know you recently hosted a global webinar on the need for contingent debt instruments in sovereign debt markets where a lot of the information was coming from folks at the Bank of England and at the IMF. And one thing I think both me too and I were curious about since you have such a keen sense of the market is whether we could get your sense on how market participants view contingent debt instruments. And in particular, I'm, I'm interested in GDP linked bonds. No, well, thank you so much. It's great to be with all of you for this discussion. So, you know, there has just been a flurry of activity on this topic by the official creditors um, on the whole PSI private sector involvement discussion. So um, I'm very glad that the official creditors have reached out to the market community to get their feedback because there's still a pretty big disconnect and mismatch between a lot of the official creditor writing that I see about this and what we think are the market reality. So let me just go through just um, my sense of you know the issues that are unresolved in the minds of market participants. So the first problem you have with a lot of these um, state contingent debt instrument discussions is the problem of pricing and first mover. And that's um, a very important obstacles. Um, and you have a lot of market participants saying, you know, now that central banks are the biggest owners and purchasers of sovereign debt, shouldn't they actually set the trend and actually become the first mover, provide some type of indicative price for other countries to follow? Um, and we've gotten a lot of comments like this that we're in this new paradigm shift. So if you are trying to launch you know, these new kinds of instruments, there's always a lot of uncertainty that's related to this. Um, and in the case of any novel debut instruments that are coming out, you know, they sort of need to trade you know, cheap to actuarial you know, value. That's kind of just the reality of all of this. And one thing I hear the official creditors say is that you know, we um, need to deal with the fog of uncertainty and that's what the state contingent debt instruments do. But I think you know, the market will come back and say, you know, what's the data and who determines the size and the thickness of the fog? How do we put a price on this? What's the percentage of the total relief on a NPV basis that's going to be required? And who sets the rules on this? Um, and, and so I think that, you know, part of the problem you have is just 
pricing and first mover and a real question given the unconventional monetary policies that have been adopted on the role that official creditors could take in getting this off the ground. I think the second um, problem that comes up is complexity. Um, just a sense that these instruments are just you know much too um, you know, you, um, complex. Um, and is there a way that you could actually um, design this in a way where you know the structure and the implementation of this is easier? So just a more effective design so that this can be implemented. And there's been a number of proposals about this, encouraging prepayment for debt relief by taking a model from the U.S. high yield market, creating you know um, these. Um, uh, PIK toggle bonds that will allow debtors to capitalize coupon payments um, in return for higher coupon rates in the future um, and issue contingent like convertible cocoa bonds. I mean, this has been proposed by, you know, some people in the buy side as well, but, you know, the problems have been pricing, first mover, you know, who sets the parameters um, as far as the effective design and the implementation. So just going to the whole issue of uh, GDP, linked bonds and loans. Um, I think that, um, you know, if, if you take a look at just sort of the, the history um, on all of this, I mean, there is a sense that, um, you know, that, that, that this has not necessarily been that successful um, an experiment, you know, in the past, if you look at the precedent. So here's the dilemma, you know, if you pay out on the GDP linked value recovery instruments. Um, that's actually been very costly politically for a, a number of countries. So a lot of debtor countries face pressure to renegotiate them or the government has to leave, um, you know, ease some of the reform policies. So I think wow. that you know, this whole promise of paying out in good times is something that's lacked credibility. So um, this, this the, thank you, Joyce. This sort of sets it up perfectly for me to turn to German and uh, Lee, because, you know, they are sort of, uh, even though they wouldn't consider themselves so, sort of the fathers of research on sovereign debt in the economics and law fields. And they have seen and been involved in uh, numerous innovations. So guys, uh, Joyce set out some sort of factors that she has seen and, you know, she has been through all of these innovations at the ground level, first mover advantage, pricing difficulties, political barriers. So I'm curious about your perspectives on what could work. I mean, Lee, uh, you know, and we've talked a lot about uh, your perspective on COVID codicils. And as I see it is sort of, that's a contingent debt instrument. And one of the questions, even though we worked on this together, I never asked you is, why do you think that will work? So if we could start by your maybe talking a little bit about what your view on the contingent debt instrument uh, debate is in terms of the, the one that can actually work and why you think the market might have more of an appetite for this than anything else. And then maybe Jeremy would be willing to chime in on his perspective from the economic side. Sure, me too. Uh, first, a comment on taxonomy. I, I distinguish between uh, a value recovery instrument and a sovereign debt workout and a contingent sovereign debt instrument. The former is 
an instrument. It can be built into the terms of the debt instrument, but it is more likely to take the form of a freestanding warrant or, or other piece of paper. And its purpose, as I understand it, is to return to the creditors uh, some of the money that they will have foregone by participating in the debt restructuring. And when you talk about GDP-linked value recovery instruments, the logic is that if the country does prosper in the future, that the creditors who participated in the debt restructuring are at least in part the authors of that prosperity, and they should be able to recoup some of the money that they uh, left on the table when they participated in the debt restructuring. I distinguish that from a contingent feature in a sovereign debt instrument in which upon the occurrence of certain conditions in the future, the country will enjoy a measure of debt relief, uh, a suspension of coupon payments, a reduction in coupon payments. Rarely, I think, would you ever see one of these involve a principal haircut. That is not, the, the intention of that is not to return to creditors some benefit that they have earned by participating in the debt relief at the outset. It is rather to ensure, or at least try to ensure, that were the country to enter a period of financial distress, it would not be driven inexorably to a full-scale debt restructuring. Now, the logic of those latter instruments is that if a country must enter a full-scale debt restructuring, everyone loses. These things are never pleasant. Uh, they always, or not always, they're usually accompanied by banking crises or political crises or social crises. If an instrument can be designed to have what I think of as a crumpled zone feature, that is, it can absorb to a degree a temporary financial uh, shock without forcing the country to go through a full debt restructuring, the logic is that benefits everybody. The downside of those instruments, or at least the criticism of them, uh, one is the one Joyce mentioned, how, who monitors, who determines what the trigger event is, and are those statistics susceptible to uh, manipulation? Uh, everyone remembers Argentina. And second, there is a degree of rigidity in them. Uh, you can prescribe that the, a coupon payment can be deferred or two, two coupon payments or 100 basis points knocked off the coupon, but is that confronted with the circumstances when they occur? Is that enough? Is it too much? Uh, so there's a rigidity to them uh, that is lost. Value recovery instruments, on the other hand, from a debt restructurer standpoint, have this demerit. When they are issued, they will be wildly out of the money and therefore will be utterly misprized by the market. Uh, so the sovereign debtor gets little by way or often nothing by way 
of enhanced debt relief in the context of the debt restructuring by adding a value recovery instrument because they are so misprized, but down the road may well have to pay a great deal of money. Uh, again, witness Argentina. So I have always viewed value recovery instruments with suspicion. Uh, I have no philosophical objection to contingent features in debt instruments designed to uh, try to avoid the necessity of full-scale debt restructurings. But I would only say that were we to get better at doing full-scale debt restructurings, particularly ones where the debt relief is not so dramatic, maybe we could, uh, uh, we could cover uh, that concern in a different way. And Lee, just to, to follow up before I, I turn to Jeremy, do you have a sense of why contingent debt instruments in this latter sense that you've described are seemingly so unpopular? You know, we, we've talked a little bit on this podcast about some of the sort of natural disaster related clauses that give payment holidays. And I know um, you were, were rather involved in the, the genesis of the, the early version of those clauses, and yet we see so few of them. Is the market hostile? Is it right to be hostile? Is it wrong to be hostile? I, I don't think there's that degree of market hostility to those natural disaster clauses. The reason you don't see those proliferate is most countries do not exist in zones like the Caribbean that are routinely subject to these sorts of events. And while you cannot predict exactly when they will occur, uh, a good actuary can tell you that they will occur you know, once every five years or, or once every three years. And so it makes sense to try to build something into them. If you go beyond countries that are susceptible to that kind of phenomenon, it becomes more difficult. And uh, I think uh, the market views, uh, would view such a clause with greater skepticism. And I think you're you're right to highlight um, the uh, maybe there's an important distinction here between the more narrowly tailored clauses, uh, like the ones we were just talking about, and GDP-linked bonds, for for example. I mean, and Jeremy, do you have a sense of the sort of wisdom of adopting? Um, GDP-linked bonds or other types of contingent debt instruments. I mean, economists, many prominent economists seem to be quite big fans of the idea, and, and yet we don't see them in the markets. What, what is your, your sense of the potential value of these clauses? Thank you, um, Mark. So uh, I should use this to advertise a new IMF paper that we issued in, in late November on just this topic. Um, it's a staff discussion note called the role of state contingent debt instruments in sovereign debt restructurings. Um, anyone who Googles this will immediately find it. Um, and, and you guys should really have the author. So I'm not a co-author, probably that's one of the reasons why, why it is uh, good and, and you may like it more than other papers that I recently co-wrote that you didn't like so much. Um, 
So, so. But you told yeah. us we were wrong to not to <laughs> not like those. So we are defeated. Okay. Anyway, you should have the authors uh, Charles Cohen and Ali Abbas, the main authors, on a separate segment because they really they really analyze this very well. But so my my two cents on this are as as, as follows. First, I, I I agree with what both Joyce and and Lee have said. I particularly um, think that Lee made this important distinction between value recovery instruments and other state uh, contingent instruments. This is also a, 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 a distinction that is made in our note and that value recovery instruments basically have not worked well and probably are unlikely to work well. And, and the reason for that, as Lee explained, is that in the context of a recovery, if anything, investors tend to have a darker view of the upside than the country itself, and that may, may be merited by fundamentals. And so you have to pay them dearly <laughs> to accept these instruments, and then you are caught uh, if, in the end, uh, there is a, a, a recovery. In the other uh, category, things are more hopeful, but here I think there's another distinction which is useful. So. You can have instruments that ensure countries against very specific, rare, unlikely catastrophic risks. Uh, and you can have instruments that are sort of more about run of the mill risk sharing. You know, GDP goes up and down, maybe commodity prices go up and down. So, my sense, and I'm not, I'm not an expert here, Joyce may want to chip in, is that these. Instruments that rare, uh, ensure against rare catastrophic risks have been more, both more, more successful and, in a sense, are economically more useful because, because those are really the states of the world where you absolutely need help because the alternative is a straight default. On the other hand, they, have been, they, they are rare enough that if you are able to define them in a precise way, you may be able to put a clause into a bond uh, without a, a, a paying through the nose uh, to investors to accept such a uh, such a clause, and and so I think this is a successful uh, uh, area and one that can be pushed further. And one idea that we we came up with uh, in a in a in another context, in the context of the so-called debt service suspension initiative, is to avoid a pro the pro type of problem that we had in the DSSI, where the private sector would not participate by having a rollover, an automatic rollover clause that is contingent on G20 debt service suspension. Uh, so this is maybe not a catastrophic event, but it is a very rare event. One could maybe make it precise, and that may have generated uh, private sector support without having to go through uh, through the hoop of, of approaching bondholders and asking them to renegotiate the debts, which is, called, of course, the reason why, in the end, there was no private sector participation in the in the DSSI. So that's the sort of thing which I think is is worth exploring. Now, the the, the one thing, the one area where I'm still a bit unsure about the answers is why these sort of run of the mill risk sharing, GDP linked bonds, commodity linked bonds, why it hasn't worked. Right? For GDP linkers, you can make the moral hazard argument that countries can play around with their statistics, and, and some have. Uh, for commodity-linked bonds, it's a... It's a um, 
let me turn this uh, to Joyce and then maybe uh, if when Jeremy is back, we can get him to fill in the blanks. Uh, but Joyce, uh, Jeremy and Mark both raised a point that you had uh, started with, which is the pricing question. And you know, when Mark and I did our podcast on uh, hurricane clauses, we interviewed one of the lawyers on Lee's team from a while back, and we asked him about how much the clause cost. And my sense was, even though I don't remember exactly what he said, which was that it didn't cost anything. And this was in the context of a restructuring where, where the creditors had already suffered some pain. And th this uh, puzzled me greatly that, you know, in the, that in the context of a restructuring where the creditors had suffered pain, Lee was able to, Lee and his colleagues were able to induce them to take this contingent clause and they don't seem to have uh, charged a big premium for it. Does that tell us that maybe pricing is uh, less important or is it just, uh, just that this was such an idiosyncratic situation? So I'm, I'm, I guess it, it's sort of, you know, and I'm also thinking now about collective action clauses and the resistance of the market initially that I remember uh, from the early 2000s, there were all these all this chess beating going on about how these would increase the costs of capital. And, you know, we really don't find any evidence that they increase the cost of capital. So it's either that the markets are not pricing these properly or that, that it's not pricing. Yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a great question, but let me just start by saying that any of the instruments that we're talking about, the design, any chance of this sort of being very widely adopted, it, it has to be eligible to be traded and bond index eligible. Um, you know, and JP Morgan does have sort of the benchmark emerging markets um, index. So, I mean, what are bondholders looking for? Is this something that's going to be bond eligible? And we actually have now, you know, modified the rules so that credit enhanced instruments can go into the index. But they want to see whether it will interact predictably with CDS. You cannot be reasonably modeled. But on the catastrophe bonds, um, I mean, you mentioned idiosyncratic, and I do think that um, you know these have been relatively rare cases. You know, compared to talking about you know GDP linked instruments, but the ca catastrophe bonds traded cheap when they were. Um, you know, when they were issued. And it's it's difficult to motivate sovereigns to pay this early mover premium. And it's difficult for investors to forego this premium. Um, so I think that um, that's, you know, some of the dilemma that you, you, you face in talking um, about these instruments. I mean, how do you actually make them tradable so that they can be priced efficiently? Um, and that gets to like, you know, where they should be priced. But I think you bring up a really good point about the collective action clauses. And Lee can also, you know, talk much more about this. There was much more angst about it than, um, you know, actually, you know, adopting it. And I still think there's still, you know, a lot of things that can be done, even if some of these proposals, um, you know, like on the contingent debt don't move forward. Um, one thing that we do think that all sovereigns should adopt is the, it's already been drafted, but it's often omitted the ICMA, you know, creditor engagement language. 
it's hard for me to extrapolate on the catastrophe bonds um, as something other than idiosyncratic to be um, very candid. But I think that, you know, the, the concern that you have about this is not just, you know, on the pricing, it's also like, you know, how tradable is this instrument? So where are you going to have to market to if there's just no market for it whatsoever? So, so, so I guess what uh, I was making this distinction between, uh, you know, risk sharing of, if you like, economic fluctuations that occur all the time, like GDP or for commodity exporters with respect to commodity prices. And, and these things do not seem to have taken off. And then insurance against catastrophic events, which is a very small market, uh, like Joyce just said, but, but I think it has been successful uh, in the sense that, you know, some countries really get serious protection from this, like, you know, Caribbean islands that are subject to hurricane risks. And on the other hand, like Mitu said, they don't seem to have paid very much for this. And, and basically my interpretation for this is that just like with CACs, very rare events do not get priced very much. Uh, things that are considered very unlikely, unless you are sort of very close to, to the catastrophe and and, and the, uh, the probability has, has gone up. And, and so this, I think, is an area worth expanding on and maybe spending more energy on than, than sort of run-of-the-mill uh, run uh, insurance. And, and one idea that we introduced in another paper in the summer was this notion that you could perhaps think of a bond clause that allows a standstill or a rollover in bonds triggered by some kind of coordinated official sector rollover, right? Like BDSSI provided this is well-defined on the assumption that this is going to be so politically difficult or special to do that bondholders will view it as a rare event and it will not be uh, expensive. So had we done this, we would have had a much higher, uh, easier time at integrating uh, bondholders into something like BDSSI. And maybe this is a good point to take a short little break. And when we come back, Mitu had alluded to a particular type of contingent debt instrument, slightly different from the ones we've been talking about, that Lee in particular has written about. And so when we come back, I'm going to start by having Lee explain to us the proposal for a COVID clause, which we may or may not be hearing quite a bit about in 2021. So let's take a short break. So we are back with the second half. And Lee, I was hoping you could start by uh, telling us a bit more about a proposal that you and me too uh, recently made that you've called the COVID codicil. And um, then maybe we can get uh, some of uh, a reaction to that from our other guests. Of, of course. The genesis of this, Mark, and I don't think we thought of it as a contingent feature in a debt instrument. The genesis was that the COVID pandemic uh, has obviously had a devastating effect uh, on virtually every country. We don't know when it will end. We don't know the amount of damage that will be done to 
economies, commodity markets, and all the rest of it. And therefore, if, as we look ahead, an unusually large number of countries will be experiencing debt distress, and some of them will need more debt relief than the DSSI can deliver, remembering that the DSSI only applies to 73 of the poorest countries in the world and does not, uh, by its terms, apply to middle-income countries. If you look at 2021, 2022, through those lenses, you may find that we are going to have to do full-scale debt restructurings for a number of countries, more or less simultaneously. There is, I think, a gravitational pull toward what we call short and shallow debt restructurings. That is debt restructurings that will deal with the immediate near-term need for debt relief, you know, the next three or four years, perhaps, but which do not deal in a convincing way with the country's overall debt problem. And that history says, particularly the history of the 1980s, where the debt restructuring technique was short and shallow, no principal haircuts, short reschedulings, 24 months or so. And when that ended, do it again, and do it again, and do it again. The result was that a miasmic cloud of debt hung over the heads of all of those countries, some 27 of them in that era. Uh, no one was investing in the countries. No one was voluntarily lending to the countries. The economies actually shrank in that period and resulted in the so-called lost decade. That's the risk with short and shallow debt restructurings. Unfortunately, everyone sitting at a negotiating table is going to uh, be predisposed to accept it. Obviously, the creditors will because uh, their objective is to goose up the recovery value in the restructuring so that they can sell out of their positions at a, at a more robust price. From the debtor's standpoint, you might think they would be the ones who would be objecting to a temporizing uh, debt uh, treatment, but in fact, they are politicians and their interest will be in getting the, this crisis over as quickly as possible, preferably well before the next election. And therefore, it may please them to say that a temporary debt relief for the next few years is perfectly adequate. The other party uh, in the play would be the IMF. And traditionally, they have been the bulwark against uh, this gravitational pull toward short and shallow debt restructurings. The idea was, therefore, to say that if indeed uh, human frailty proves to be uh, all conquering and short and shallow debt restructurings are uh, prevalent in this post COVID period, at the very least, one should acknowledge that everyone, debtor and creditors, are taking the risk that uh, the debt treatment will prove to be inadequate 
And rather than face another lost decade as a consequence of this, might it not be better to say that if a second debt restructuring is necessary, which is to say, if the IMF concludes that the country's debt uh, stock remains unsustainable two or three or four years after the debt restructuring and another debt restructuring is required, at the very least, reduce the voting threshold for a collective action clause to implement such a second debt restructuring, as long as the terms uh, uh, of additional debt relief are proportional over uh, all the instruments that were issued the first time around. The argument is, look, everybody open-eyed took a risk that the debt treatment would be inadequate. You did that for whatever reasons uh, you took that risk. If the risk materializes, at least let the second debt restructuring be done more efficiently and hopefully quicker in order to avoid uh, all the damage that comes with a with a full debt restructuring. Uh, that, Jeremy, was, that was the basic idea. Jeremy and Joyce, I hope you don't mind my turning this to you. So as Lee articulated it, I'm wondering whether your sensors for uh, moral hazard uh, are, are blaring and whether you think that this concern about shortened, shallow restructurings because of political incentives, or as Lee puts it, political frailties, is something that we need to be very cognizant of. And I don't know, maybe Jeremy, we'll start with you and then turn to Joyce. Thank you. No, no, my, my moral hazard <laughs> warning lamp is not uh, flashing. I, I actually think it's a great idea. It's Sounds like a, a fantasy by an economist that a lawyer would usually blow apart. Um, so since it comes from Lee and yourself, I'm I'm reassured uh, that that it may, may actually uh, uh, stand a chance of, of working. Uh, so I, I agree with the premise, which is that very often uh, countries ask for too little, and I think this would be a, a very nice way of. Uh, of getting around that uh, problem, if it can be done uh, through a uh, you know a contractual form that that you have in mind, on moral hazard, I uh, one reason, I mean I, I guess the key the key question is when does sort of the time period expire in which the need for an additional uh, debt relief request can be excused as a failure to go deep enough the first time round versus new accumulation right of uh, of you know sins going forward right that that is what you mean by the moral hazard point and i think you know that can be handled by defining the time window under which uh, within which uh, the lower thresholds would apply relatively short uh, and of course to the extent that these restructurings occur in the context of imf programs you would want, I mean, you, 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 you have some reassurance that the being in a program contains any, any moral hazard, and then it may take a while for countries to, uh, to um, engage in, in 
uh, uh, risky policies that would uh, create a, a new a new crisis. So I, I would sort of my room of thumb would be you know program period plus a plus a little more. I think that that would work from an economic point of view. And Joyce, do you have a, a similar reaction? I, I am my my initial instinct was that it would be hard to sell to investors the idea that in addition to granting debt relief that from their sort of perspective, rightly or wrongly, is going to feel quite steep and quite generous on their part. But that in addition to, to conceding on these financial terms, they are to accept a lower restructuring threshold for the next N years, let's call it five. Does that seem like it's it's a hard sell that raises a moral hazard kinds of concerns or or not? Well, I, I think I, I go back to the discussion that we had on the collective action clauses earlier. And I think the key thing that investors are going to you know look at is can you do something that is contract based? Um, and voluntary? And can you learn from just this whole experience um, with the DSSI? Because, you know, you've got the fundamental problem for market participants that if you're talking about doing something that's automating a standstill um, in, in response to a shock, um, you, you really do risk harming the whole asset class. So how can you say emerging markets is a real asset class like every other bond market if a standstill is automatically dictated? So there's the concern that you can't undermine the whole asset class. Um, what I do like about Lee's um, approach is that, you know, it is contract-based and it's voluntary. And, you know, the thing I would point out is that we have seen change occur over the last um, 20 years. You can argue about um, the direction of change and, and whether it's gone quickly enough, but in the wake of Argentina's holdout crisis, that's when the market and issuers came together and really did design and implement enhancements to the collective action clauses. So I do like the idea of actually taking the collective action clauses and saying, look, do you reduce the voting threshold? Do you come to some kind of agreement on parameters when you've had other um, you know, solutions that haven't worked? Um, and because I think that's really the nature of what the market will um, be looking for. How can you do something that's um, contract-based approach that therefore will make the market more robust um, rather than something where uh, you're, you're putting in language, like even calling it debt suspension or standstill that really just makes us not seem like um, an asset class that's going to be viable like every other bond market. And I will just point out that even in this year of a pandemic, I mean, you've had record emerging market sovereign bond issuance. Now, it's been mostly for the higher rated countries, but you've had 200 billion raised in the international capital markets. So you don't want to um, jeopardize that. Um, but I think that you know, you know, more flexibility, um, you know, working off of something that has already proven to be successful, like the collective action clauses, you know, is a starting point that's much easier for market participants to look at, rather than saying like, oh well, what about automatic standstills that just kick in um, at a certain point, you know, determined by official creditors. So things like reducing the threshold to me seem much more pragmatic. So one one question that. I still have on this, and it, this is one for any of you, which is that in Lee's articulation, the IMF uh, plays a key role because 
you need a credible institution uh, to be saying that there needs to be further relief. And my sense is that the IMF, there are few things that it hates more than getting dragged into contractual clauses inadvertently. And so what if they just refuse to play, play ball? They say, look, you know, these are private uh, contract terms. We have no involvement in those. Don't, don't write triggers that, that put pressure on us. And I, I realize Jeremy maybe can't um, talk about this, but Lee and Joyce, I mean, uh, we have only one credible institution on this. And what if they don't play ball? Like, why do we think they will cooperate? Uh, the, there's a short answer to that in this case, me too. Uh, the IMF staff, in order to recommend a program to its executive board, has got to conclude that uh, the debt, uh, the country's debt is sustainable. If it concludes that it is unsustainable, uh, the implication of that is normally the country must undergo a debt restructuring or a pretty savage fiscal adjustment uh, in order to return to this level of sustainability. So my response to that would be, this is a quotidian assessment by the staff of the IMF. They must do it every time they take a proposed program to their board. And therefore we're piggybacking on something that is well, well established. I want to ask what quotidian is, but maybe Jeremy uh, and Joyce, that, that, Every that day. big word. This, I'm so excited we <laughs> use a word like quotidian on our little podcast. <laughs> I, I want to make two points, if I could. Um, first, in, in response to Joyce, so if you think that conditioning a standstill on uh, an event like... Um, having a G20 decision to uh, for the official sector to suspend debt service is, is too tough, then, you know, we, we, we could also entertain uh, a clause that lowers the, the threshold for collective action uh, in uh, relation to such an event. Uh, but but I, I just wanted to point out that the type of concern that, that Mitu immediately identified for his and Lee's proposal, namely more a hazard, would not be a concern, right? In the, uh, in the case of uh, the type of the maturity extension clause that we, we had proposed because the G20 would undertake such a debt service suspension initiative, not in response to the troubles of a specific country, but in response to sort of a broad problem like pandemic. And, and these are very rare events. I mean, the probability that this will occur is arguably a lot smaller than the probability of you know, a, a country uh, that uh, undergoes a debt restructuring requiring another one within, within, within five years. So, so that is in defense of, of my, my earlier point. On, on um, uh, Mitu's point of IMF discomfort in being baked into clauses, you are absolutely right. And so this is why I emphasize sort of me as an economist who is not necessarily speaking for the IMF, finding your idea appealing. I have a suspicion that if 
my colleagues from the legal department were on this podcast, they might find it less appealing precisely for the, the reasons that you have identified. This said, you know, there is nothing that would prevent uh, the uh, parties to the contract from conditioning this reduction in uh, the majority action thresholds, two things that the country ha ha has to do. And, and if it is that they need to have an IMF program, then uh, you know this is something that they can do. Uh, and indeed, it would then uh, mean that they benefit from the quotidian um, debt sustainability assessment of the of the IMF. So, uh, as a practical matter, I think I think this this might work. No, and I, I could just add a, a few quick thoughts here, but um, you know, I, I do have to agree with Lee that you know we see the whole um, debate discussion of debt sustainability you know, evolving with market circumstances and macro circumstances, whether it is you know talking about um, you know the most highly indebted countries or a country like Greece and how the IMF's role has you know evolved with this. So. As we take a look at how debt sustainability is being defined in this post-pandemic world, because you know this is a period where, you know, the Rogoff uh, Reinhardt you know rule book has been thrown out. You know, when we used to say 90, 100 percent, now everybody's saying is it 150, 200 percent. So I could see where the IMF is called in on this because of its credibility, and this is probably not the first or the last time it will happen. We've seen that not just for emerging markets countries, um, but for developed countries as well. And I, I did want to just add a comment on this whole issue of the DSSI, because I think that you know, one of the issues is just the way it's talked about, it just raised a lot of uncertainty. So you don't want to add to the fog of uncertainty. So when everybody says, well, we're disappointed that there isn't more PSI, you know, which countries are they talking about? Um, because you know the restructurings that we have seen have been really concentrated in the more frontier markets. Um, you know, the broader point I would make is that you, know, you, you don't want to sort of jeopardize you know, just the, the whole um, asset class and getting, you know, private capital flows, you know, into the broader markets. And I think some of the DSSI um, rhetoric around it was just like, well, this is a starting point. And everybody then had the question, which countries are being targeted? How are you distinguishing this? So I do like the um, approach that's being you know, discussed by Lee, which is that you have to look at something that is, you know, contract-based, that's voluntary, where there's negotiations involved. That's just the reality in any restructuring, um, you know, that will be needed rather than necessarily saying you can come up with these rules, um, you know, that can be applied off of a set of numbers because we see these numbers continuing to shift. What we thought was debt sustainability a few years ago compared to what the discussion is right now continues to shift. And if you do need to have some intermediary in this, I mean, the IMF is going to, you know, probably be the first place where people will turn. But, but sorry, Joyce, can, can I challenge you a little bit on, on this idea that any, I mean, it seems to me that by the logic, the, the logic that you had just stated, you are, you are, sta you are challenging or, or contradicting the logic of any type of state contingency, right? State contingency is not about applying a collective action clause to change payment terms. State contingency is typically about just changing payment terms in reaction to a contingency. And you know this is done with respect to well-defined rare events in the case of whatever, hurricane clauses. And so all we uh, suggested is let's apply that scheme 
to something that is much less drastic, namely requiring a maturity extension in reaction to another rare event, which happens to be, you know, the G20 getting their act together to, to, to organizing an official uh, rollover, right? So, so we're not suggesting anything dramatic here or anything that is different. In fact, it is a much lighter treatment that one what the catastrophe clauses could do. Yeah, you know, let me try to clarify because I, I um, you know, because I, I hope I didn't um, sort of confuse the point, but we do get back to the whole question of, you know, how do you actually have the, the data points to, you know, uh, and the metrics to determine what the thresholds are. And that's where I do think that, um, you know, even if the IMF doesn't want to be involved in how do you define that sustainability, you know, it has an important role to play with this. So that is separate from the whole issue of maturity extension. Um, but I do think that just there is a role that the IMF has had in a lot of these restructuring talks, um, just because you do need to have somebody engaged in this, um, you know, to work on some of these issues, which are not just about maturity extension, but how you actually come up with the data points, the metrics, and, and get agreement and establish what the thresholds are. And I think that they are being redefined by this pandemic. So that part of the discussion is not going to go away. Um, and how do you, you come up with a process where that's a, um, a fair process and, and is one that seemed to have be done objectively. But I think, you know, part of the issue that we have with all of these is that you talk about, you know, the catastrophe bonds and they're an exception is that there is this whole critical mass problem that, you know, even for like the GDP linked instruments until you have, you know, a lot of them issued. And so that you can say it's an asset class, it does become something that's really seen as one off and idiosyncratic. And so that's some of the skepticism I have when people talk about the catastrophe bonds, as an example. That if this is sort of the once in a generation, once in a century event, you know, how does that actually lend itself to how you would put it into an asset class? Well, speaking of once in a generation or once in a century events, if I can shift gears uh, a bit as we wrap up the, the episode and, and ask you each a more sort of gestalt question about what we can expect for 2021. I mean, we're on the, the cusp of the new year. The, the pandemic seems to be worsening in a lot of places, seemingly almost everywhere. And it seems like the worst of the economic fallout likely lies ahead of us. But we also have some grounds for optimism, credit still cheap, vaccines are on the horizon and so forth. Um, so it seems like we are sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop. There's a concern we could see a systemic sovereign debt crisis in the near future. And at the same time, hope shading into optimism maybe that we'll be able to avoid that. So the question I wanted to ask each of you, and maybe if I, if you don't mind, Joyce, I'll start with you. Is it, what are you most worried about for 2021? What is it that, that keeps you up at night when it comes to, to the sovereign debt markets? Well, I think, first of all, next year is a year where we see a lot of divergence, you know, within emerging markets. So you have that you know North Asia has been you know successful at addressing the second wave. They've had much better growth numbers than the developed markets. But then you have that some parts of emerging markets have been just much more devastated. And you know Latin America stands out to me. 
Um, and I, you know, what worries me and all of this, I don't see a systemic you know, debt restructuring problem in part because there's market access. Um, the governments for the, the core major emerging markets countries, they issue mostly in local currency at this point in time, but we've had Southern sovereign defaults over the last year. Now it's been more frontier markets, Argentina and Ecuador had already occurred before the pandemic, but it's been, you know, um, Bolivia, Belize, um, you know, Suriname, Lebanon, Zambia. So I think it is going to be more concentrated. And that's why I continue to make this distinction that it's very hard to talk about emerging markets um, in one lump sum, but there will be more um, sovereign debt restructurings to come. And I think, you know, official creditors will need to be very careful um, about that language because this crisis for emerging markets is very different than past crises because um, you have not had the big balance of payments issues that we've typically seen. So you've got current account surpluses in most of the major emerging markets countries. You've had the market access remain in place. You haven't had um, the financial market crisis, that financial instability yet from the capital markets perspective. And I think it's been very important. I mean, look, you can see that even Peru, even with the political upheaval they have, they were able to issue a century bond, which is why you know some of this may seem more about the semantics rather than talking about specific cases. Um, I know there's a danger of that from the market side, but it's um, very important when we talk about the market more holistically. But, you know, where I really do worry is that um, in the second wave, just the logistics and the availability of the vaccine and the ability to get it um, distributed, you know, you know evenly, it, it's going to be very uneven. And so when you take a look at some of the supply chain issues and that it's double dose vaccines and that it has to be transported at these incredibly cold temperatures like negative 70 degrees and that many emerging markets countries just cannot put in the social distancing. I really do worry that for emerging markets, I mean, um, you know, it, it's, it's not about the debt being a lost decade. It could just be more of a lost decade because of what's going to happen with human capital and bringing down the potential growth numbers because just getting the solution to emerging markets is, is going to be harder than for many of the developed markets. Jeremy, did you have thoughts? I, I know from from some of your recent work that many of the risks are concentrated in the near term uh, in the next couple of years. And I'm wondering whether you are feeling more optimistic than you were a couple of months ago, less optimistic. What, what is it that you're, you're worried about for 2021? So, so um, look, like everyone, I'm slightly more optimistic given the good news on vaccines, right? Um, so that in a sense puts a backstop uh, below this whole uh, crisis. Uh, now, I'm still of the view that we will have several additional debt restructurings uh, in the coming year that are not anticipated already. So I'm not talking about cases like Zambia uh, or other cases that, that have sent in uh, requests or are generally expected to send in requests. So in, in that case, sense, it will get worse before it gets better. But just like Joyce, I wouldn't call this a systemic uh, debt crisis. So people are a bit imprecise sometimes on what they mean by a systemic crisis, but it's definitely not going to be a systemic crisis in the sense that it threatens the financial stability of advanced countries like the 1980s debt crisis did. 
and it will probably not be systemic in the sense that we do not have quite the, the you know large number of simultaneous defaults and restructurings that we had in the 1980s and in particular they will be resolved much more quickly than they were resolved in the 80s because we have better instruments and now you know institutions have been developed and have learned so in that sense i'm i'm reasonably optimistic now there are tail risks right and there are particularly two tail risks one is that we might get a restructuring from a large borrower that might lead to a change in risk sentiment vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the entire asset class. So a sudden stop, right? The notable thing, the incredible thing of this crisis is that it has not been a sudden stop with the exception of this very brief period in, in March, which was over by about in, in, within about three weeks. So this I view as a tail risk. It's definitely not what I or we at the IMF are, are expecting as the baseline. The other tail risk is that the vaccine issue takes so long in developing countries and emerging markets that you continue to have a really depressed uh, output uh, into 2022 in the developing world at a time when the advanced world is also already recovering very fast and that then that leads to high interest rates in the advanced world which is out of sync with with the rest of the world right and the fact that the, this was a common shock that hit both advanced countries and low-income countries and emerging markets was from a financial point of view a blessing because it meant that advanced countries acted in ways that were not just good for them but also for the rest of the world by by uh, switching to extremely easy monetary uh, policies if we see this reverse prematurely that could be a big problem for the developing world again that's another tail risk and you know etc paribus obviously the recovery of the advanced world is is a great boon to to developing countries senior lee uh, we started this podcast series something like 22 episodes ago with you as our first guest. And that, that was a point at which we did not have any understanding of the devastation that this pandemic would impose. What are your thoughts for the upcoming year? And as Mark put it, uh, your fears in particular? Well, I'll only add to what my colleagues have said. Uh, they've made all valid points. But I would add this. At the beginning of this crisis in the spring, uh, the IMF opened two new rapid uh, dispersing facilities, and more than half the membership of that organization applied for them which gives you some idea of the ubiquity of the suffering that this pandemic uh, has caused. Second point, I very much hope, as we all do, that the vaccines roll out smoothly and quickly and that uh, that uh, puts an end to the pandemic as we've known it. I have some concern, however, that there may be some lasting effects 
from this experience for 18 months, we have learned as a society to fear each other. <laughs> we, we've been told <laughs> not to get together for Thanksgiving. Are we quickly going to be prepared to forget all that and rush back into movie theaters or airplanes and all the rest of it? Final comment. While I agree that a sovereign, a systemic sovereign debt crisis in the sense of the 1980s, one that threatened the financial stability of the entire world is unlikely because as Joyce and Jerome have pointed out, the larger emerging market countries continue to have market access. There may be a number of smaller countries which individually and in the aggregate don't threaten the very foundations of international finance, but which for those countries and the citizens of those countries are dire humanitarian crises. And that may persist uh, even after the vaccines are in everybody's arm. And that's what I fear. Uh, I look at my friends in the Caribbean, they will lose their tourism industry this winter. That is for some of them, 40, 50, 60% of their GDP. I'm not sure they'll get it back in full next winter for the reason I've just mentioned, that people may have a residual fear from this experience uh, about getting on airplanes and the rest of it. So that's what I fear. But we should not take comfort from the fact that the larger countries and the developed countries might not be threatened by this. There will be a lot of suffering out there for the poorer countries. And, and I think they should enjoy a degree of our solicitude. Thank you so much, guys. This, this was a very uh, special episode for us to end the year on. Even though there's a note of pessimism, I'm hoping we will start 2021 with optimism and have you back on our podcast soon. Well, thanks so much for the invitation and great to catch up with everyone. And um, just uh, really look forward to keeping the dialogue going and um, appreciate really just all of the, the insights. And, um, and also that, you know, um, there has been a lot of engagement with the market on this one, which I think at other, I, I think that DSSI to me was not very successful the way that it happened. But I do feel like on the discussions that are occurring um, on state contingent debt, and even the way that they had asked you know me to sort of bring in a bunch of market participants, I, I do feel like that's the right starting point. I think the collective action clauses um, you know, have been uh, you know, a success. And everybody's trying to go back to some of the templates where they've been most successful and see what else can work. So great to be with all of you. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks. Thanks, folks. Thank you.